Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia this Monday. It is Monday, isn't it? It feels like a Monday. It's got a, Yeah, yesterday was Sunday. I was in church. So <laughs> full number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I had to take my son to communicants class yesterday. We're in a PCA church, so he's going through the classes to join the church. And we're, we're on the lesson about communion <laughs> And the Presbyterian minister says, who knows anything about uh, communion? My kid raises his hand and says, well, the Catholics believe in transubstantiation. (laughs) Begin to explain it. And the priest's like, stop. Oh, uh, (laughs) maybe you had to be there. In any event, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number I've already given you, 877-973-7425. So I was going to start uh, with the president and Daytona Beach, and I will get there here momentarily. But I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sidetracked. By the Mike Bloomberg stuff, an interview has just come out where Mike Bloomberg uh, says he puts uh, ice cubes in his beer because he likes it really, really cold. And so he waters down his beer. That's just gross. I mean, I put ice cubes in my glass of bourbon that I had last night uh, because that actually put in an ice cube to cool it down. And as it melts, it brings out new flavors. But it's not the way beer works. I'm sorry, Mike Bloomberg. Uh, that's just, the guy is weird. And you know, we, I, I've had this discussion with y'all before. I I know a number of billionaires. I know one who's actually fairly normal and does not live in a uh, pretentious neighborhood. You would you could see his house and you'd say, oh, that upper middle class, not a billionaire's house. Very nice guy. Uh, I, I know a, a couple of others who are, are very nice, but clearly you get to that level and you get surrounded by people who just want your money. All of your friends kind of become political. It's, it's hard to have more normal friends. And, you know, I, I say that as someone on, on the radio now who I, I've done radio and TV for a number of years and it is increasingly hard to make new friends with people because everybody wants to be friends with the guy on the radio. They don't really want to be my friends. They want to be friends with the guy on the radio. And when you get to the billionaire level, you're the mayor of New York. You're a billionaire. You, you run a major corporation. Yeah, a lot of your friends become political friends and, and you have access to people you otherwise wouldn't have access to. But a, no one wants to tell you that you're an idiot. Uh, again, this this for me goes back to, to Rush Limbaugh and I have been friends for a number of years, and he really encouraged me when I started radio. And one of the very first pieces of advice Rush ever gave me was that I needed someone who was going to be a jerk. Now, he didn't say jerk, but uh, someone who was going to be a jerk, someone who would tell me when I screwed up, someone who would tell me. Uh, that I wasn't doing a good job. Uh, and he said, when you get into radio, and this is true, and I don't know why it's true, but it is true. If you ever wanted a uh, little window into the way radio works, you're never going to be told you're screwing up in radio until they cancel you. And I, I don't know why that is, but but it, it, is, it is a weird business. Uh, you're, you're going along just fine. Nobody says anything to you. And then one day you're canceled and says, well, you've been screwing up. Well, if you told me I was screwing up, I could have fixed it. People don't do that. So, uh, Russia's point was you got to hire a jerk, someone who's going to tell you that you've screwed up. A lot of billionaires get to the, they get to a level where there's no one around them to tell them that they're screwing up. Everyone is a yes man. And eventually when everyone tells you that you're doing well, when the person comes forward to tell you you're not doing well, you've built up trust with all these yes men. And the guy who's telling you you're not doing well is the person you're skeptical of or hostile to. 
even though they're telling the truth. And to some degree, this is a problem that the president has had. The president, for so long, being surrounded with people who really just wanted access to him, uh, using him transactionally, it has taken the president a while to get to the point where people who he trusts can come into the White House and say, maybe you shouldn't have done that. And, and increasingly, as we head into campaign 2020, I think it's notable he's bringing back Hope Hicks and a few other people who have been comfortable in the past telling him that he screws up and, and to rein it in. And these are people he listens to. And that's a good thing. And Bloomberg, I don't know that Bloomberg is doing this. It, it's very bizarre. Some of the statements that he's made on the campaign trail are just out of touch. I want to play one for you. And listen to this. This is Mike Bloomberg. And I want to discuss this with you afterwards because there's a parallel to this as well, particularly here in Georgia. Anybody, even people in this room, so no offense intended, to, to be a farmer. You, it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. Then we had 300, you could learn that. Then, then um, you have 300 years of the industrial society. Uh, you put the piece of metal on the lathe, you turn the crank and the direction of the arrow, and you can have a job. And, and we created a lot of jobs, one point. 98% of the world worked in, uh, in agriculture today. It's 2% in the United States. Uh, now comes the information economy. And the information economy is fundamentally different because it's built around replacing people with technology. And the skill sets that you have to learn are how to think and analyze. And that is a whole degree level different you have to have a different skill set. You have to have a lot more gray matter. You know what this reminds me of? Uh, it, it very much reminds me of Stacey Abrams two weeks after Hurricane Michael came through South Georgia, destroying billions of dollars worth of damage, uh, multi-million dollar crop losses. And Stacey Abrams in South Georgia says, well, you shouldn't have to be in agriculture or in the uh, service industry. You should be able to go to Atlanta and get a good job. And it was deeply insulting to farmers in South Georgia. It was deeply insulting to people who live in South Georgia that Abrams was essentially telling them, you know, don't commit to this lifestyle. You, you can do better than this. And there's a lot of pride in being a farmer, understandably so. But for, for Bloomberg to suggest in the information economy, you got to have more gray matter than to be a farmer, that anyone can learn to be a farmer. Anyone can dig a hole and plant a seed and keep it watered and grow crops. I, the man has never been on a farm. Farming is some of the, the best information economy out there. Uh, the amount of data farmers use now, and, and you may not be aware of this. If, if you live in an urban area, you may not be aware of how technologically advanced farms have become now uh, in terms of water data, wind data, sun data, where to water, uh, lots of computers, uh, monitors in the soil for soil moisture level, uh, really redoing, rethinking, making uh, farms more efficient. They're more technically savvy. Lots of computers in the field, lots of computers on tractors these days. And for Bloomberg to come out, he just, he doesn't know that. Not only does he not know that, but in an age where roughly 2% of Americans are farmers now, Bloomberg seems to think that you don't have to be smart to do it and that smart people leave the farms. Now, we've got a rural-urban divide in this country. We do. It is increasingly so. Brian Kemp won in Georgia on the rural vote. By the way, uh, I, I would suspect that his comments take Georgia off the table completely. But did no one 
think to tell him, hey, maybe you need to go get out on a farm, e- even in Minnesota or somewhere. He doesn't have to come to Georgia. Go to go to an Iowa farm. Now, he didn't campaign in Iowa, so it doesn't matter. Can you imagine if this comment had come out before the Iowa caucuses? To some degree, there, there, it was smart of his strategy to be let everybody annihilate themselves and then uh, jump into the race. But still, the dude is out of touch. So Donna Brazil, yes, yes, that Donna Brazil. She and I are actually good friends, uh, very much like her, even if we disagree on politics. But, man, she went on Fox and she had some choice words about Bloomberg. Mike Bloomberg reacting to President Trump's barrage of attacks this week. But the former New York City mayor also facing incoming about his long record in public life. And we're back now with the panel. Donna, as we've been saying. Mayor Bloomberg rising in the polls, new stories coming out, old tapes coming out about his record on race. And as we've said several times, a, a big story, a takeout in The Washington Post today about his, and you can see it there, about his long history of sexist comments going back decades at his company and women saying that they believed he created a hostile workplace. How damaging to his campaign. Extremely. Look, I think there are many people in the Democratic Party who are looking at uh, Mr. Bloomberg because he has the resources to take on President uh, Trump. But the question, uh, in my judgment, is his record. I mean, I am uncomfortable uh, with his policies in New York. I understand he's apologized. I get that. I'm for forgiveness. But I am extremely dismayed at the uh, the information I read over the weekend about his sexist, the sexist work environment. You know, it's one thing to have uh, this so-called top law enforcement policy is stopping for us. It was rule unconstitutional. And it has taken him years to say, I'm sorry about that. He has the he has the resources, but I'm I am very uncomfortable with with his record. Very uncomfortable. Guy uh she's not alone among the Democrats and they're only starting to learn. Now listen, some of the Democrats, and this is one of the fascinating things out there, is some of the Democrats are willing to go along with Bloomberg because they think he can beat Trump. Say what you will about Donald Trump, but Mike Bloomberg actually has an authoritarian record as mayor of New York. And the Democrats in New York were fine with it, as were a lot of Republicans. Bloomberg, after all, ran as a Republican uh, because he didn't want to have to face anybody on a Democratic debate stage or in a Democratic primary. And that's kind of the problem with him is even here he has he's moved advanced up the polling. He's skyrocketing the polling largely by avoiding the fights. And now the Democrats are trying to drag Bloomberg into the fights, and there's a lot of dirt out there on Bloomberg. There is a lot of information about Bloomberg that is going to come out, uh, drip, drip, drips, including now here. Here's another one. Uh, Bloomberg, he, in 2013, civil libertarians and teachers unions are extremists just like the NRA. Yeesh, that that's not going to go over very well. I, I I wouldn't imagine with a lot of people on the left thinking that teachers unions and civil libertarians, for that matter, are like the NRA and they're extremists. I loathe that illegal guns threaten our communities every day, especially black and Latino communities, because politicians don't have the courage to stand up for the measures that can save lives. In Washington, some elected officials don't have the courage to stand up to special interests on the right and pass common-sense gun laws. And in New York City, some don't have the courage to stand up to special interests on the left and support common-sense policing tactics like stop and frisk. We don't need extremists on the left or the right. 
running our police department, whether it's the NRA or the NYCLU. The legislation is based on the false allegation that the NYPD disproportionately stops young men of color. But as you know, stops are made based on descriptions of suspects and suspicious activity only. And the sad reality is, on the streets of our city, 90% of murder suspects and murder victims are black and Latino. And black and Hispanics are the overwhelming majority of suspects in other violent crimes. The truth of the matter is, Comparing stops to the general population is just not rational. Comparing stops to the witness's description of suspects and the identification of suspicious activity, which together reflect the racial and ethnic breakdown of criminal activity, is what matters. And the numbers put the lie to the racist allegations. In fact, the percentage of stops of blacks is less than that of whites and Asians when adjusted for crime reports. Now, we can't ignore the re reality of crime. That was from Politico, found that from 2013. And you know, there's a lot of sense in there, but he's also blowing up the, the sure. hush Siri. He, he's also blowing up the New York Civil Liberties Union and the teachers unions. That's a pretty big deal to be going after the teachers unions, the, the NYCLU, the New York City Liberties Union. Wow. There's something else here. Uh, Bloomberg out on the campaign trail is apologizing now for stop and frisk. Uh, as Donna Brazil pointed out, it took him running for president to apologize for stop and frisk. That's a big deal in the Democratic primary. Democrats are opposed to stop and frisk. They were opposed to Bloomberg, who was a Republican when he did it, and that's given them air cover. Uh, but you get these old videos and Bloomberg's apologies don't seem nearly as full-throated as his defenses of stop and frisk in these videos that are coming out. And the Democratic opposition research on Bloomberg has only just begun. Now, part of the problem that the Democrats are having, this is kind of funny, Bloomberg has hired all the opposition researchers. That's right. Mike Bloomberg is pouring vast amounts of money into the Democratic primary to hire up every available staffer who could do opposition research on him to prevent them from doing so. There are people sitting on the sidelines getting money from Bloomberg and they're being paid to sit on the sidelines. He's got billions and he's not afraid to use them. And that's driving the Democrats absolutely crazy. Poor old Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar losing their minds over Bloomberg. I, I, I got to play you some of this audio when we come back. And then we do need to move on to the Daytona and the media meltdown over the president daring to let the beast drive around the track. You can call in and be a part of the program if you like. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. Well, the Democrats finally decided they need to take Bloomberg seriously. You know, he's not on the ballot in, in Nevada and he's not on the ballot in South Carolina. And essentially the Bernie campaign is out there urging people to consolidate behind him. And the Bloomberg campaign is out blowing up actually full on direct assault on Bernie supporters, the so-called Bernie bros. I can't actually play you the web video that Bloomberg's team has put out because it would essentially be uh, Bernie Sanders supporters called Elizabeth Warren beep, Amy Klobuchar beep, 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 beep. I mean, I couldn't play it for you on the radio. It'd have to be redacted. I can play you Klobuchar and, and Warren, though, who are kind of aggravated with Bloomberg now. 
So look, my view is anybody should be able to run who's a Democrat and put their ideas out there, whether they're rich or poor or someplace in between. The part I object to is the billionaire being able to reach in his own pocket and throw down, you know, a couple of hundred million dollars in order to finance their campaign. Because what that does is that just short circuits all of democracy. It means that his voice is enormously loud. But the voice of all the people who pitch in $5 or $25, much less. That's the fundamental issue here. Billionaire wants to run for president on the Democratic ticket. That's fine. Just don't use your own money to do it. You go out and raise grassroots donations. Get the support of the people. And by the way, you don't get to skip the democracy part of this either. Go out and shake hands with people. Go out and listen to their questions. Go out and let them tell you about what's happening in their lives. That's how this democratic process should work. That's how it should work. That's not the way it works, though. He's out there buying up the race if he can. Here's Amy Klobuchar. Given some of the things that Michael Bloomberg has said, um, whether it's about women in the workplace that he's been accused of saying or about uh, policing African-Americans, redlining, things like that, if he's the Democratic nominee, does it make the job of going after President Trump's character harder? Um, Again, I don't think he's the best person to lead the ticket. I think I am. Uh, But I think just like every other candidate, like I have come on your show multiple times and a number of other Mm -hmm. candidates have come on and answered tough questions, he's got to do the same thing. He hasn't gone on the Sunday show since he announced. Instead, he's just running ads. And I don't think you should be able to hide behind the ads. I think you should not only go on these shows. I also think that he should take the debate stage. That's why I have actually been supportive of him on that debate stage, because I know I can't beat him on the airwaves, but I can beat him on the debate stage. <laughs> Good for her for taking that. But, you know, here's there is a parallel to Trump here. Look, much of the American media in New York is enamored with Bloomberg because they know him in the same way in 2016. They were enamored with Trump because they knew him. He was a creature of New York City. Bloomberg is a creature of New York City. It matters to them greatly. And because it matters to them greatly, uh, they will give him pass in the same way in 2016. And arguably, the media gave Donald Trump pass. I am old enough to remember when CNN covered the landing of Trump's uh, airplane like it was the landing of Air Force One. They, they gave wall-to-wall coverage of this. I, I, I distinctly remember one day, Wolf Blitzer, we're, we're waiting for Mr. Trump to exit the plane. The, the plane has moved down the runway now. And it just, it was ongoing commentary of the Trump airplane moving down the runway as Trump was arriving somewhere. It was silliness. And, and I, I hate to drag Wolf into it because I think highly of the man, but it was crazy coverage on CNN, wall-to-wall coverage from CNN constantly about Trump. Uh, They played all of his rallies nonstop. Only after Donald Trump actually looked like he would win, uh, could win, that they really started blowing him up. But the media gave him inordinate amounts of attention in the same way they've kind of been doing to Bloomberg, and they've been giving him a pass. Trump, you'll recall, was allowed to call into the Sunday shows, and we get asked softball questions. Bloomberg isn't even bothering with the Sunday shows, and they're giving him a pass. It was good on uh, Klobuchar on, on Meet the Press to kind of rub in the fact that they are uh, they're allowing Bloomberg to dodge in ways they would never allow anyone else to dodge. At some point, 
He's going to have to sit down for interviews. And the question is going to be, uh, are the interviewers willing to actually ask him tough questions or are the interviewers willing to give him a pass? Now, the precedent, frankly, for the media is Trump. Because a lot of the media in 2016, they wanted him to be the nominee because they thought he could beat Hillary. And they were desperate to not ask him tough questions at first uh, to try to gain traction. Well, he did, and they lived to regret it. But they really like Bloomberg now, and they're willing to do it for him. You can call in and be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. So this happened. The Daytona 500 is a legendary display of roaring engines. Soaring spirits of the American skills, speed, and power that we've been hearing about for so many years. The tens of thousands of patriots here today have come for the fast cars and the world-class motorsports. But NASCAR fans never forget that no matter who wins the race, what matters most is God, family, and country. The crowd loved it. He he drove in the beast around the track. That is uh, the president's uh, limousine, the well armed, well protected limousine. I okay. Let, let let me start with this, and this is what I was going to do out of the gate until I saw all that Bloomberg stuff, and it it needed to come first. But uh, the media meltdown yesterday over the president driving the beast around the track, and I shouldn't say drive. You, you know what I mean? He riding in the beast around the track with Melania Trump. Complete meltdown. Uh, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times and others. Uh, this is he's using the official tools of the presidency for campaign events. Every president's done this. I mean, this is the thing. I'm old enough to remember when Barack Obama would go out on the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton and fly Hillary Clinton in Air Force One so she could come down the steps with Barack Obama for that visual. I'm old enough to remember that. That, that happened. What? How many years ago? Four years ago. Was the media? I mean, the media clearly was in a comatose state for a number of years. They completely forgot about that. And now here's here's another story. This, this is a, a CNN story. Trump campaign manager deletes dramatic Air Force One photo after people point out it's from 2004. Uh, it is people in the stands at Daytona, and behind them, Air Force One is taking off. From the Daytona International Runway. President Donald Trump's campaign manager deleted a tweet featuring a dramatic photo of Air Force One at the Daytona 500 after users pointed out the shot was from President George W. Bush's visit to the NASCAR race in 2004, not from Trump's visit on Sunday. The tweet stayed online for about three hours, drawing at least 6,700 retweets and 23,000 likes. But the photo was taken by Jonathan Ferry on February 15, 2004, after Bush's visit to the racetrack, as Air Force One took off from the adjacent Daytona Beach International Airport. Y'all, why is that a story? It reminds me, the other day, CNN.com had a story of a uh, middle school girl who drew a map of the United States and elongated the the Texas panhandle to stretch all the way up to Canada and drew Ohio a second time uh, in the Four Corners region. And it was was a CNN story that this girl had, had done this. Now, the only reason it was a CNN story, apparently, is because her father was somewhat famous. 
And so CNN did a story about this girl. Why is it a relevant news story other than her father was famous? He, why is this a, a news story that President Trump's campaign manager put a picture up online and it was actually President Bush taken off from the Daytona race after particularly, you know, th- this highlights the fact that the media blew the president's appearance at Daytona out of proportion. <gasps> He's using official resources. He drove the beat. You know how he's going to get from the Daytona International Airport to uh, the Daytona racetrack? He's going to drive in the limousine. The fact that he drove it around the track, y'all, it's it's Trump. Trump has broken so many people. Um, it, it is it's it's sad to see so many people who are just enraged by the president of the United States for daring to what to to show up in the car that he's going to show up with anyway you know i'm, I'm pulling up the map here the runway th- that picture was from george w bush and that picture was uh of the air force one taking off the runway literally is right behind the track i mean it is it's not the runway at which the planes take off it's not a thousand feet from the racetrack. It is close. It is really close. And when the president lands, the president gets in what's called the beast, which is the limousine. And the Secret Service ferries him over to the Daytona International Speedway, which again, it's not a thousand feet from the airport. And he's going to be in the limousine anyway. And so he had the audacity to make a lap in the car at the Daytona 500. You would think that the president of the United States used official resources to run a campaign ad on TV, the way the media is melting down over this. It is a double standard in the press. And by the way, I bring up that 2004 story because George W. Bush did it. He did not ride the car around the track, but in 2004 on the campaign trail, wanting to win Florida, George W. Bush went to the Daytona 500 air force. One landed with the crowd there. Air force one did a flyover. Everybody got to see it. He didn't ride. He, he rode the beast into the track. Everybody got to see him in the beast. It didn't go around the track, but everybody saw it. And here's the thing. And this is why I think the media is really upset Barack Obama couldn't do it. If Barack Obama did it, he would have gotten booed. Those aren't his voters. NASCAR fans tend to lean Republican. Many of them voted for Donald Trump. And that's why this is a big deal for the media. In our partisan era, the media understands the president is galvanizing people. And by the way, Florida is a state that's going to be fought over by both sides. And the odds are Donald Trump could win Florida. Florida is increasingly a Republican state. Donald Trump could win Florida. Making a play for a Daytona 500, you're not just luring Florida voters, though. You're luring, luring Republican voters who watch it on TV across the country, particularly in the South. You're locking in your base. Now, Trump supporters are upset because Fox, when, when the president started speaking, Fox, which was airing the Daytona 500, took a quick commercial break. But they covered the car running the lap. And, you know, the, this, this ties in as well to... Uh, just how much the media melted down over this, the Michael Avenatti stuff. I, I I need to play you this because, you know, Michael Avenatti was Stormy Daniels' lawyer 
And the media had Michael Avenatti on constantly. In fact, let me play this. This is Brian Stutler on CNN, reliable sources, talking to Avenatti, who comes out swinging against the president during the the Brett Kavanaugh stuff. He's on every network. Remember, CNN and MSNBC one night both had Avenatti on, both claiming it was a live interview at the exact same time. I don't know. I agree with you. I don't know if it's a good thing that star power and TV uh, savvy is required for the job, but I think it is. And, And by the way, I think... President Obama also had a lot of TV star power, and that helped him pre-Trump. But Trump is more evidence of this. And looking ahead to 2020, uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. I'm taking you seriously as a contender because of your presence on cable news. That's what Brian Seller of Reliable Sources on CNN said to Michael Avenatti. The, the media that is upset that the president dared to ride his limousine around a track at, at, at the Daytona 500. I keep wanting to say the Fortune 500. You know where my mind is this morning. The, the Daytona 500. The same media upset at the president for that is willing to ignore the fact that it built up a guy like Avenetti, a, a, a swindler, a crook, a guy who was going to jail for extortion of Nike. They built him up. And, and you know, what the media response with this weekend was, was, oh, well, it was because of Donald Trump. I mean, Do- Donald Trump made this guy relevant because of Stormy Daniels. It's not our fault. Can the media for once be honest that it is their fault? He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare. Michael Avenatti. Joining us once again is Michael Avenatti. Let's bring in Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, thank you very much. He's out there saving the <laughs> Look, country. It, it, Don Meacham says he may be the savior of the republic. You are something of a folk hero now. I owe Michael Avenatti an apology. I've been saying enough already, Michael. I've seen you everywhere. What do you have left to say? I was wrong, brother. You have a lot to say. I uh, am just dying to hear what you think. These people all like you. I'm the only person right here Donald Trump fears more than Robert Miller. We think you guys are the tip of the spear that's going to take down Donald Trump. Michael Avenatti's a beast. Okay, that's true. And he, he's a beast. He's a beast. I hand it to yeah. her and I hand it to Michael Avenatti. But he has a great, bigger calling here. That being a lawyer is minimal compared to what he's doing. No one has talked tougher directly to Donald Trump on TV than Michael Avenatti. And Donald Trump is afraid to mention his name. That's fascinating. Donald Trump is terrified of Michael Avenatti. He gives Trump a run for his money more than anybody else, Michael Avenatti. Existential threat to the Trump presidency. The Democrats could learn something for you. You are messing with Trump a lot more than they are. He has no doubt created sheer panic in Donald Trump's very fragile mind. Michael Avenatti is laying down the law as guest co-host. And is he really thinking about running for president? Uh, One reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. You look at the field of Democrats right now, and Avenatti's the one who stands out. If they decide they value a fighter most, people would be foolish to underestimate Michael Avenatti. I have always said that they need a fighter. Look, I mean, we're going to continue to use the media. I think we've used it with great success. All of my sexual fantasies involve handcuffs. Uh Oh, gross. The media made this guy. No one ever heard of Michael Avenatti before he started going on TV to attack the president. Uh, He was coming on as a just play it straight guest and the media loved it. You know, when I'm on TV, typically 
There are a few occasions where this isn't the case, but typically when I'm on television, there's always a counterpart, someone from the opposite side. If we're discussing Republican politics, it's someone from the right who disagrees with me. We disagree on Republican politics. If it's if it's a, a partisan matter, there'll be a Democrat. Sometimes there will be someone who is explicitly uh, pro-Trump, someone who is explicitly anti-Trump, and then me in the middle. That's now happened a couple of times, which is always a fun conversation. Uh, to agree with the Republican who loves the president and also agree with the Democrat who hates the president, or to disagree with both of them. It's kind of fun to be the man in the middle of those conversations. Uh, typically what happens, though, particularly when I was at CNN, it was me, it's a Democrat, and it's a host who is also a Democrat, and it's two against one or three against one. And those are a lot of fun because I like to hold my own against people who have the same talking points. And he, with Michael Avenetti, he never went on with someone else. It was always him as, as the objective person. It was always Avenatti who would go on air and the media would give him unfettered access to attack the president. And as, as Bill Maher said on the Bill Maher show, and, and Bill Maher, by the way, did a one-on-one interview with him. Avenatti was not on the panel. Uh, like a couple of weeks ago, I was on a panel with a couple other people. No, Avenatti was a standalone interview where he wasn't challenged. She was told he was the tip of the spear to go after the president. And that's why so many people in the media liked him. Now, all of this comes full circle to the story I talked about on Friday. And it needs more exposure. It really is. It is a dangerous story. I do have some thoughts on it. Let me just give you the headline. Playing on Kansas City Radio, colon, Russian propaganda. Here's the subtitle. Radio Sputnik, a propaganda arm of the Russian government, began broadcasting on three Kansas City area radio stations during the primetime drive time. When commuters spin the radio dial as they drive through Kansas City, Missouri these days, between the strains of classic rock and country hits, they can tune into something unexpected. Russian agitprop. In January, Radio Sputnik, a propaganda arm of the Russian government, began broadcasting on three Kansas City area radio stations during primetime drive times, even sharing one frequency when a station with a station rooted in the city's historic jazz district. Who needs a ridiculous Red Dawn invasion? A participant in one online forum wrote about the news broadcast. Your overlord, Mr. Putin, will be addressing you soon, so it's best to prepare now, another commentator wrote, referring to President Vladimir Putin. In the United States, talk radio on Sputnik covers the political spectrum from left to right, but the constant backbeat is that America is damaged goods. Sputnik's American hosts follow a standard talk radio format, riffing on the day's headlines and bantering with guests and callers. They find much to dislike in America, from the reporting on the coronavirus epidemic to the impeachment of President Trump, and they play on internal divisions as well. So Radio Sputnik used to be the voice of Moscow when the Soviet Union was around. When the Soviet Union collapsed, it became the, uh, Radio Sputnik. Uh, Putin rebranded it. It is Putin's radio station. All the views expressed are are Vladimir Putin's views, and he uses radio uh, Sputnik radio to sow internal divisions around the world, not just in this country. It functions very much like the Voice of America, but Voice of America reporters have always prided themselves on not really being a propaganda outlet for the United States. In fact, there are federal laws that prohibit it. Radio Sputnik explicitly is a propaganda network for the Russians, and they're buying airtime on American uh, radio stations uh, across the heartland. Now, a, a couple of things here with this story, though. 
China and Qatar have been doing this for a long time, but they've been reliably taking positions that the American media likes, and they're not the Russians. And by the way, uh, the American media loved Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera, funded by the Qataris, uh, so, uh, Osama bin Laden's favorite news network. If you dared to point that out when Osama bin Laden was alive, uh, members of the media uh, called you racist. I know because I did it and it happened to me. People blew me up for daring to refer to Al Jazeera as Osama, Osama bin Laden's favorite news network, and in fact it is. But the media loved them. The media has for years now been running Chinese propaganda in newspaper pages and not advertising it as Chinese propaganda. But here's the thing. None of this is good. It's just the media is only paying attention to the Russians doing it because they know when Vladimir Putin does it, he means business. He's pouring lots of money into getting Russian propaganda radio on American outlets locally. So sandwiched between, say, my show or the Rush Limbaugh show, you may have a small talk station that feeds a couple hours of Russian propaganda that sounds like it's American radio, but is explicitly, latently anti-American. It is designed in its conversation to sow discord. This could never happen if the American media was trusted by Americans. This could never happen if the American media actually filled the role it was supposed to fill. But increasingly, the American media trumpets guys like Michael Avenatti to go after the president of the United States. They serve as democratic propaganda. Well, the Russians can come in with their propaganda network because the media itself has become a propaganda network for the Democrats. No one trusts the media anymore. Progressives and conservatives alike have disdain for the media. The very news networks that bash Fox News constantly are the ones who kept putting Michael Avenatti up as someone who could attack the president without giving anyone competing airtime. They just let Michael Avenatti. And as an aside, the stories were notorious in green rooms that Michael Avenatti was a terrible person who treated the staff behind the scenes horribly. There were multiple news stories that came out about Avenatti berating staffers at news networks for getting his lighting wrong, getting his makeup wrong, treating him badly, not treating him good enough, daring to make eye contact with him, all sorts of horror stories about dealing with this guy. And yet the the powers that be, the Jeff Zucker at CNN, constantly had this guy on where he was abusive to their staff, but he could take on the president of the United States in an environment like that, in an environment where the media is willing to attack the president for daring to ride in his limousine around the Daytona 500 racetrack after years of giving presidents a pass for doing similar things, for allowing Barack Obama to use Air Force One as a prop for Hillary Clinton's campaign, all of these things, the Russians can come in and stake out turf as a propaganda network for the Russians supposedly delivering straight news. They can do it because the media has failed at their job. If the American media would actually stand up and be honest brokers and fair in the way they cover the news to both sides, the Russians wouldn't have a shot at doing this. But they got a shot at doing it because the media doesn't care about doing anything other than carrying water for the Democrats. Well, it was only a matter of time. I I actually find it very, very funny. The left is coming for South Park. Uh, Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. By the way, I did send out the baked potato soup recipe on Friday. If you didn't get it, uh, if you're not on the list, if you text the word recipe to 33777, you'll get a text message back asking for your email address. And when you send your email address, you'll be subscribed and get an email that has a link to the baked potato soup recipe if you want it. Uh, Text recipe to 33777. It is a great recipe, but I got to tell you, it is a pound of 
bacon and a pound of cheese. It is not healthy, but it is glorious. It is glorious. Uh, so uh, the left is coming for South Park. Uh, let me read you this tweet. It all started with a woman named Dana Schwartz. Uh, Dana Schwartz is a blue check mark on Twitter, meaning she's someone of note. She's a writer of books. Uh, she lives in Hollywood and she writes in retrospect, it seems impossible to overstate the cultural damage done by South Park, the show that portrayed earnestness as the only sin and taught that mockery is the ultimate inoculation against all criticism. These are the people who love John Stewart and the daily show and the Colbert report. And now Stephen Colbert on, on the late show. These are the people who love left-wing comedians who mock the right South park is a libertarian production. If you've never seen it and it mocks everybody, but particularly mocks the smugness of the left on everything from the environment to climate change. It has mocked the left. And now suddenly they're upset about a, a TV show that teaches that mockery is the ultimate inoculation against all criticism. That's exactly what the left's been doing for years. They just hate that someone else does it better than them. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you this morning with kind of... Um... Oh, <laughs> see, and I've got like several people who still want to weigh in on the NASCAR stuff. People can call if they want to. Um, but, you know, it is just just going back to the NASCAR thing real quick of the president and the media outraged by it. Seeing several people have sent me pictures of the NASCAR racers and fans taking pictures with the president. He hung out. The first lady hung out and all sorts of people highly complimentary of him. This is their base. And the media outrage by it is so, so silly. And let me tell you, there's one other thing at which the media outrage is, it's silly to me. It is genuinely silly. It is the outrage over William Barr. I want to go back to his interview last week. Uh, I want to play you a couple of snippets of William Barr. He had the interview on ABC News. I realize we've already been through this, but there's a method to my madness here. Bear with me here. Uh, this is William Barr again, uh, interviewed by ABC News. You'll hear the reporter and William Barr. The U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia signed off on his name is on the recommendation that went in there. Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, on Monday, uh, he came by uh, to briefly chat with me and say that uh, the team very much wanted to recommend the seven to nine year to the judge. And, but he thought that there was a way uh, of uh, satisfying everybody and providing more flexibility. Uh, and there was a brief discussion of that. I was under the impression uh, that what was going to happen was very much that I had suggested, which is deferring to the judge and then pointing out various factors and circumstances. Uh, on Monday night, uh, when I first saw the news reports, I said, gee, the news is spinning this. This is not what we were uh, going to do. So you were surprised? Uh, I was very surprised. And uh, once I confirmed that that's actually what we filed, I said that night, uh, to my staff that we had to get ready because we had to do something in the morning to amend that and clarify what our position was. I had made a decision that I thought was fair and reasonable 
uh, in this particular case. And uh, once the tweet occurred, the question is, well, uh, now what do I do? And uh, do you go forward with what you think is the right decision, or do you pull back because of the tweet? And that just sort of illustrates how disruptive these tweets can be. So you're saying you have a problem with the tweets? Yes. Well, I have I have a problem uh, with some of some of the the tweets. I'm happy to say that in fact the president has never asked me to do anything in a criminal case. Uh, however, to have public statements and tweets made about the department, uh, about uh, our people in the department, our our men and women here, about cases pending in the department, and about judges before whom we have cases. Uh, make it impossible uh, for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors in the, in the department uh, that we're doing our work with integrity. The original reaction to William Barr's statements to ABC News were somewhat positive by the press, but as people settled in to think about it, uh, the reaction became as hysterical as that of Susan Hennessy, the, the left-wing commentator on CNN. Yeah, I can't believe I'm about to be more cynical than Jeffrey Tubin, but I don't buy this for a second. Bill Barr is reportedly facing an internal revolt in the Justice Department, four prosecutors withdrawing from the case, one resigning from the department entirely, reportedly more resignations might be coming in the coming days. This is Bill Barr attempting to quell that revolt by making a big splashy statement. And the reason I think we can say, we can say that Bill Barr is not being genuine in this statement is because he's claiming that he was acting in good faith. That in this one case in which the DOJ has a process for considering sentencing recommendations, that process isn't perfect, but it is designed to be apolitical. When that process produced a result that was unfavorable to one of the president's political cronies, and in only that case, and in no other case, Bill Barr intervened. Now, whether or not he saw the president's tweet or that was acting on the president's direct request or not, that is political interference. And so the idea that Bill Barr is expecting us to believe that this is just a, a spoke concern about criminal justice reform, bespoke one sort of concern. Trump crony at a time, it, it, it just defies, you know, it defies logic, it defies belief. And, and I really do believe that this is just about theater and attempting to hold the line with his own staff within the department. Now, that became the conventional wisdom for a lot of people. And now comes this New York Times story, which is where I want to go. But I needed to set the stage again. Here's the the uh, title, Former Justice Department Lawyers Press for Barr to Step Down. Subtitle, More Than 1,100 Former Prosecutors and Officials Who Served in Republican and Democratic Administrations Signed an Open Letter Condemning the President and the Attorney General Over the Stone Case. More than 1,100 former federal prosecutors and Justice Department officials called on Attorney General William P. Barr on Sunday to step down after he intervened last week to lower the Justice Department's sentencing recommendation for President Trump's longtime friend, Roger J. Stone Jr. They also urged current government employees to report any signs of unethical behavior at the Justice Department to the agency's Inspector General and to Congress. Each of us strongly condemns President Trump's and Attorney General Barr's interference in the fair administration of justice. The former Justice Department lawyers uh, wrote uh, who came from across the political spectrum. Those actions, they said, quote, require Mr. Barr to resign. A sharp denunciation of Mr. Barr underlined the extent 
of the fallout over the case of Mr. Stone, capping a week that strained the Attorney General's relationship with his rank and file and with the President himself. A Justice Department spokeswoman declined to comment after prosecutors on Monday recommended a sentence reduction of er, a sentence of nine years for Mr. Stone, who was convicted of obstructing congressional inquiry. Mr. Trump lashed out. Senior officials of the department, including Mr. Barr, overrode the recommendation, immediately prompting accusations of political interference. And there we go. Now, in May, Protect Democracy, this is a group, gathered signatures for a letter that said the Mueller report presented enough evidence to charge Mr. Trump, Trump with obstruction of justice. At the close of his investigation, the special prosecutor declined to indicate whether he actually did obstruct justice, and that letter was also critical of Mr. Barr. And on and on it goes. Now, it will not surprise you to learn that most of the people who signed this letter are on the left, uh, even those who worked in the Republican administrations. You notice it was somewhat curious that they didn't go into the the depth of personality in these letters, many of them unknown, 1,100 of them. Here's one of the things that people don't know about Washington and the way the civil service works. Uh, With the exception of major positions of power in an administration, the lower level positions in an administration are allowed to convert into the civil service if the department in which they are in has openings. And so what you have is a scenario where a lot of people from the Clinton administration, given the way that the the Bush versus Gore election went, they decided to convert into the civil service and and essentially would hold Bush accountable and undermine him. But then 9-11 happened and they really didn't have grounds to do that. When the Obama administration left office, this, this is kind of like the, the, the leaker and, and the whistleblower situation with uh, the Trump administration. These people convert into the civil service, and when they convert into the civil service, they get job protections. They're still progressive activists. They were the progressive activists hired by the Obama administration and now within the civil service. And the civil service rules make it difficult for a president to clean up the civil service and get these people out of the civil service. But they're there trying to undermine the president of the United States. And so you've got a bunch of people in the Justice Department who don't like the president of the United States, who are progressives, even if they served under George W. Bush. They are definitely to the left of Donald Trump. And oh, my goodness gracious, they have decided to sign this letter uh, and and suddenly somehow or another they're going to be thought of as, as serious and when you look at the names of these people yes there are a bunch of them but a lot of these people are on the left a lot of these people are progressive activists who were brought in by the Obama administration for example and are now out in the private sector And they're working from the outside to get attention for themselves. And what's so interesting here is is I'm looking. Now, there are 1,100 of them, and I haven't seen all the names. But I'm I'm looking at a number of these. You've got assistant U.S. attorneys. You've got different special litigation councils. And a lot of them were Democrats. Yeah, okay, you got a handful of Republicans, but let's not kid ourselves. We also know that a number of these people who... Our Republicans are certainly liberal Republicans who didn't like Trump to begin with. What you don't have here are people who support Donald Trump or supported Donald Trump prior to 2016. And that's the most notable thing is the people who signed this letter. You're not going to find Trump supporters on the letter. 2016 Trump supporters. Now, you know, I've encountered a couple of people 
who I know, and in fact, I met one on Friday night. So I did an event up in uh, Johns Creek on Saturday night at the Atlanta Athletic Club. Heck of a place, by the way. That's a nice place. Now, I, I'm too terrible at golf to play. I still got to get a golf membership somewhere. Um, I'm too terrible to play at a place that nice, but it was a beautiful facility, and it was for the Family Policy Alliance, uh, which is a great conservative group here in Georgia. If you're not familiar with Family Policy Alliance around the state of Georgia, Family Policy Alliance does phenomenal work, really phenomenal work. Uh, they not just uh, they don't just work with churches to raise awareness of Christians in the public square. They also find good candidates to run for office who are explicitly Christian. They train them in something called a statesman academy. They teach them, uh, really have philosophical discussions with them about how to be a Christian in the public square. How do you be a Christian in politics? Particularly in this day and age where a lot of times Christians are asked to take positions that are affronts to the grace and character of a Christian. And they got to figure out, I got to just start taking my, Siri is bugging me. Um, In any event, they do a great job. And But I met someone there on Saturday night who had been a Trump supporter in 2016 and has just kind of burnt out. It's not that he's going to vote Democrat. He's just thinking of, of sitting out. He doesn't like the president's behavior. He's kind of tired of defending it. I actually want to spend some time on this point in, in a little while because there's some interesting data, believe it or not, in the New York Times, an, an opinion column in the New York Times today about the, the whispering Trump voter. But this guy was kind of burnt out on the president. And I've met now a couple of these people. And, and honestly, what stands out in my mind more than anything is that I actually meet more people who opposed the president in 2016 who are supporting him in 2020 than I am of anyone who supported him in 2016. And now they're like, nah, I'm done. I know those people exist. I met one on Saturday night. I know this person meant well, was sincere, and I understand it. But I am actually kind of shocked by how they are in the minority. And that gets to this letter with the Department of Justice and, and, and William Barr. The reason I bring that up from Saturday night is I I have I don't know there are eleven hundred people on this list and the list is growing. But I'm about ninety nine percent certain that if if out of eleven hundred names, if there is someone on the list who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and now wants William Barr to resign and is outraged, if such a person exists on that list, I bet I can count all of them in a, in a list of 1,100 people. I bet I can count all of them on one hand. Maybe two, but I'm betting one hand. Five at the most out of 1,100 would be people who supported the president in 2016 and are now like, I'm done. Those sorts of people don't exist. And I think that it's deeply relevant that there are way more people who have converted to supporting the president who didn't in 2016. By the way, I'm one of those people. I'm debating whether or not to write a book, uh, Never Trump to Yes Trump. Uh, and, and I keep thinking maybe I need to, but I got to rush it if I do it because um, uh, the, the time is approaching where it would have to get to a publisher. But trying to explain my my path from being one of the, the leading never Trumpers in this country in 2016 to say, you know what, I'm going to vote for him in 2020. There are a lot of things about him that I don't care for character and temperament in particular, his tweets in particular, but look at the policies he's advanced. He's actually a fairly mainstream Republican president. There are things I disagree with him on, but there are things I disagree with George W. Bush on. And uh, given his policies versus the Democrats policies and given him versus them, you're darn right. I'm voting for him over them. And kind of laying that out for people and explaining it, not not to convert people. I, I, I don't expect to convert everyone. 
But I do actually think that there are some people who who it, it may be of interest to them as to why I changed my mind. And the, you know, the crazy thing about it, though, is that the last book that I wrote, it, it was a book called Before You Wake, and, and I need to make copies available for, for you guys. You can kind of get a sense of who I am through this book. Uh, it was my wife and I both had... Well, I in particular had a near-death experience in 2016. It was really bad. Um, a lot of people thought I was going to die, and I didn't, and I wrote a book for my kids on, on life lessons, and it was called Before You Wake, Life Lessons from a Father to, the, to His Children. It even includes some of my recipes because, uh, you know, if I were to die, I would want my kids to know how I make the turkey at Thanksgiving and how I make the pound cake and all that sort of stuff, the food that they like. But inevitably, I got on all sorts of media outlets uh, who really wanted to talk to me about not supporting the president in 2016. And we had people show up at our house to threaten us. My kids were chased through a grocery store with a guy yelling at them. They were bullied in school. We had to move them to a different school. My my wife had a woman come up to her in church and, and wanted to, to do bodily harm to me. This woman did. And it was just, it was a bizarre time. And whenever I went on TV to talk about my book, inevitably it came back to that. And so I, I guarantee you, I, I had a, had a full book tour with that thing. If I write a book and I'm I'm seriously considering writing it on why I'm going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020 after being so vocally against him in 2016, I bet half the media outlets that wanted me on in 2016, 2017 with that other book will want nothing to do with me with this book. It's just it's fascinating uh, the way this sort of stuff works with the media bias and and they want Bill Barr gone and their headline is you got all these people who want him gone and they don't want to point out how probably none of the people on this list of 1,100 people voted for him to be voted for Trump to begin with. They don't like the guy. They don't like his appointees. They want them all gone, and it's just sour grapes. It's sour grapes for the media as well. Hello. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson. Yes, you can call in if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got news that is good for, for anyone who has ever watched the live stream of this program. You know, I drink a lot of coffee during this program. Let me, let me tell you all a secret not really a secret because I'm I'm very open about this. I am not a morning person. I have never been a morning person. I do not like getting up as early as I have to get up for this program. I would love to do uh, do this at a different time, but nine to noon makes the most sense in radio for me to do a show. Uh, nobody actually does a show during noon to three because there's this brilliant guy noon to three and no one wants to compete against him and I'm not going to do that. Uh, so, so I do nine to noon and, and I love being here with you all and I love helping you start your day. But I drink a lot of coffee because I'm just a night I've always been a night owl. I would much rather stay up all night and, and work through the morning and then go to sleep than go to bed and wake up early in the morning. I, and I've always been that way. And, and I'm noticing now the more often I do this on a regular basis, I'm now starting to wake up. And it really sucks on the weekend because I want to sleep in. And now I can't because I'm, I'm wide awake. I, I did that Family Policy Alliance thing on Saturday night and then went out uh, Ken Pullen who's in the state house uh, and Scott Hilton who works for the governor he the two of us and, and their wives and I we went out after the program uh, and, and grabbed a little bite to eat before I drove back to Macon from Johns Creek it was about an hour 45 minute ride home got home one o'clock in the morning was 1 30 ish in the morning actually I think I got in uh, went to bed by two and wide awake at 6 30 in the morning the normal wake up time for this show I get up at 6 30 in the morning 
uh, get all the audio uh, video stuff that I want to, to Charlie, my producer, and away I go planning the show. And now every single morning, I wake up at 630 in the morning with or without an alarm clock, and it drives me insane. And I go back to sleep. And then, you know, when you wake up that early and you go back to sleep, uh, you wind up sleeping through your alarm clock, and then it puts off your whole day. Nonetheless, I, I say all this to say I drink a lot of coffee. I drink a lot of coffee. I love coffee. We've actually got a hipster coffee shop in California that roasts the beans on a Tuesday, puts them in the mail on Wednesday morning, and we get them on Thursday, and I've got a bean grinder in our built into our coffee pot, and I love my coffee. It's called Mustache Coffee, by the way. Total hipsters, but they're awesome. And the New York Times has a story. Is coffee good for you? Yes, but it depends on the kind of coffee and the quantity. In moderation, coffee seems to be good for most people. That's three to five cups or up to 400 milligrams of caffeine a day. Yes. The evidence is pretty consistent that coffee is associated with a lower risk of mortality, says Erica Lotfield, a research fellow at the National Cancer Institute who has studied the beverage. For years, coffee was believed to be a possible carcinogen, but the 2015 dietary guidelines helped to change perception. For the first time, moderate coffee drinking was included as part of a healthy diet. When researchers controlled for lifestyle factors, such as how many heavy coffee drinkers also smoked, the data tipped in coffee's favor. All these years, we've been told all sorts of things that may not be true. Some of the strongest protective effects may be with type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's disease, and liver conditions like cirrhosis, liver cancer, and chronic liver disease. Yay, that makes me really happy to know that I haven't been ODing on coffee. It is Eric Erickson here, and yes, you really should, um, because we will be gearing up here soon as, as the Georgia legislature tries to figure out what it's going to do on the governor's budget, and it uh, looks like they want to bail on the teacher pay raises that Brian Kemp promised, so we're probably going to need to summon the army of activists to help the governor uh, get his agenda through the House. Uh, it, it appears that adoption reform and uh, foster care reform will make it through the United States or the United States, the, the Georgia Senate. It is in the House of Representatives. The speaker has decided he doesn't like the governor and essentially wants to kill all of the governor's legislative reform, reform proposals. And we're going to have to pressure our state legislators, particularly in middle and south Georgia. I'm glad the show now is on. I got to I got to get us picked up in Albany and I'm working on Savannah as well as we expand the show uh, and a couple other stations I, I really want to get on. And, and there are a few that we will be coming to soon. And I it, it's incumbent on conservatives to be willing to stand up and fight for the governor and fight for, for a good agenda, particularly when the Speaker of the House wants to scuttle it all in league with the Democrats because he doesn't want Brian Kemp to have a win on adoption and foster care reform. It's just sad to see. Uh, and, and I do think our teachers do need pay raises in the state. He's trying to alleviate their burden of being testing, uh, testaholics, so to speak, where the teachers do their entire job is to give tests these days to not be uh, to not be teachers, but to be administrators and proctors of tests. And the governor wants to scrap the number of standardized tests in the state, bring down that number in addition to paying teachers more to, to make it better for more teachers to come into the school system, uh, to make it more feasible, to make it more attractive for teachers. And the fact that there are members of the legislature that want to scuttle this is crazy. And so please text the word ARMY to 33777. Text ARMY 
to 33777, and you will on occasion start getting an email from me when I need you to call the legislature or Congress. There may be a national issue, and if you're not in Georgia, I've done this in, in Texas and Alabama and Oklahoma and elsewhere, so sign up, text ARMY to 33777, and when there's an action item in your state, uh, we'll be able to, to mobilize, and, and particularly in Georgia. Now, I, I want to go back to the coffee story, not because I want to talk about my coffee drinking habits, but man, I, I do like coffee. You know, I never drank coffee until I was in law school, and now I can't live without it. Um, I, I want to read you this because there's 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 a story. There's related stories. I want to tie stories together. I'm a professional, people. Experts say some of the strongest protective effects of coffee may be with type 2 diabetes, Parkinson's disease, and liver conditions such as cirrhosis, liver cancer, and chronic liver disease. For example, having about five cups of coffee a day instead of none is correlated with a 30% decreased risk of type 2 diabetes, according to a meta-analysis of 30 studies. The potential benefit from coffee might be from the polyphenols, which are plant compounds that have antioxidant properties, according to Dr. Giuseppe Grosso, an assistant professor in human nutrition at University of Catania in Italy and the lead author author of an umbrella study. However, coffee isn't for everyone. There are concerns about overconsumption. Okay, dude is talking about five cups of coffee a day, and there are concerns about overconsumption. Seriously, this is especially true for expecting mothers because the safety of caffeine during pregnancy is unclear. Listen, maybe for expecting mothers, but if you were a young mother, you want to like free base caffeine because you're not going to get sleep at all. We don't know for sure if coffee is the cause of the health benefits, says a professor at the University of Edinburgh. These findings could be due to other factors of behaviors present in coffee drinkers. Now, does it matter how it's poured? Uh, dark or light roast, coarse grinding or fine, Arabica or Robusta, all these different aspects affect the taste, but also affect the compounds within the coffee. But it's not clear at all how these different levels of compounds may be related. Roasting, for example, reduces the amount of chlorogenic acids, but other antioxidant compounds are formed. Espresso has the highest concentration of many compounds because it has less water than drip coffee. A study in the, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine, examined the coffee habits nearly 500 thousand people in the UK and found it didn't matter if they drank one cup or chain drink eight regular or decaf or whether they were fast metabolizers of coffee or slow. They were linked to lower risk of death from all causes except with instant coffee. The evidence was weaker. Who drinks instant coffee anyway? Now, why do I bring this up? Oh, 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 and, and, and here, here we go. The, the oil in boiled coffee, boiled coffee is a uh, coffee that, that often happens in the Middle East, uh, was shown to raise bad cholesterol and lower good cholesterol. But that's it. If you filter coffee, drip coffee, no problem. Now, why am I spending so much time? I realize you're, you're, you're bored now. You're like, why is he spending so much time? Here, here's the thing. For years, for years... I heard growing up coffee was bad for you. Coffee could give you cancer. Coffee was a carcinogen because it was roasted. It was bad. Uh, you go to California, it, you can find coffee that has the label on it. It may cause cancer. Everything causes cancer. Everything's got a label. Remember the egg study. For years, we were told eggs were bad for you. Eggs raise your cholesterol. Eggs gave you heart attacks. Eggs could give you a stroke. Eggs were bad. Now it turns out eggs are great. Everybody can eat eggs. The, the science changes so much. All of this is played out 
on a daily basis in the media and the media salivates over every single story. Every time there's a story about dietary habits and new medicine and and new research, there's a huge story. For example, all of the stuff about the beyond and impossible meat stuff. And, and, I know someone who's connected to the impossible burger or impossible meat there. That's the fake meat that they had to get FDA approval because one of the things is synthetic hemoglobin. The reason that your fake meat products don't really taste like meat is because of hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is in blood and it gives you that, that meaty feel. They describe it, the blood feel that comes from eating meat. Your red meat doesn't have blood in it per se, but you know what I'm talking about. You, you get a certain texture in your mouth, a feel. Uh, your body detects that there's 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 a real meat here because it detects the hemoglobin. Well, the Impossible Burger, the Beyond Burger stuff, it, it's synthetic hemoglobin made in a lab. For years, we've been told what? More processed food is worse for you. There is nothing more processed than lab-grown fake meat with synthetic lab-grown hemoglobin. And yet we're now told that it's good for the environment to have these impossible burgers because it's it's good for the environment. We're cows. We have less cows. If we all ate this stuff, we'd still get the same benefits of having – we would still get the same sort of sensation of having meat, us uh, omnivorous people or carnivorous people. But we would actually be eating a plant-based food, and so there would be less cows uh, belching and farting and spewing methane in the atmosphere. And this is good. Never mind that every scientific study ever has shown that eating a bunch of processed synthetic uh, food is bad for you. They don't care about the people, though. They care about the environment, and the media is willing to flip on a dime on this stuff and sensationalize it. And that leads me to the coronavirus and all the media stories about the coronavirus. I want to read you a headline from the Washington Post out this morning. Tom Cotton, that's the senator from Arkansas, Tom Cotton keeps repeating a coronavirus conspiracy theory that was already debunked. Senator Tom Cotton repeated a fringe theory suggesting that the ongoing spread of a coronavirus is connected to research in the disease-ravaged epicenter of Wuhan, China. Cotton referenced a laboratory in the city, the Wuhan National Biosafety Laboratory, in an interview on Fox News' Sunday Morning Futures. He said the lab was near a market some scientists initially thought was a starting point for the virus's spread. We don't know where it originated, and we have to get to the bottom of that. We also know that just a few miles away from that food market is China's only biosafety level 4 super laboratory that researches infectious diseases. Yet Cotton acknowledged there's no evidence that the disease originated at the lab. Instead, he suggested it's necessary to ask Chinese authorities about the possibility. No, we don't have evidence the disease originated there, but because of China's duplicity and dishonesty from the beginning, we need to at least ask the question to see what the evidence says, and China right now is not giving us any evidence. Cotton is referring to a well-known lab in Wuhan, a cellular-level biosafety level 4 facility with a high level of operational security that works on researching dangerous pathogens. In response to Cotton's remarks, as well as in previous interviews with the Washington Post, numerous experts dismissed the possibility. There's absolutely nothing in the genome sequence of this virus that indicates the virus was engineered, said a professor at Rutgers. Vipin Narang, an associate professor at MIT, says it's highly unlikely the general population was exposed. It's a skip in logic to say it's a bioweapon that the Chinese deployed and intentionally deployed or even unintentionally deployed. That's not what Cotton's saying. 
The British publication, The Daily Mail, was one of the first to suggest a connection between the coronavirus and the laboratory in Wuhan. Later, The Washington Times ran a story under the headline, Coronavirus May Have Originated in Lab. The Chinese ambassador has rejected the idea. It's true a lot is still unknown, but it's very harmful. It's dangerous to stir up suspicion. So let's review. The headline is Tom Cotton keeps repeating a coronavirus conspiracy theory that was already debunked. Can can anybody tell me who in this debunked it? A professor at MIT says it's highly unlikely. A professor at Rutgers says the possibility that it was deliberately released can be firmly excluded. And the Chinese ambassador himself says there are still a lot of unknowns. So who who debunked? Who debunked Tom Cotton? Can anybody tell me in this story from the Washington Post who debunked Tom Cotton? Because I, I'm not seeing that anybody has debunked Tom Cotton. Maria, the situation is very grave, in part because, as you say, China was lying from the beginning and they're still lying today, and also because there are so many unknowns about this virus. For example, how many people one person can infect once they have the virus, the extent to which it's contagious before one is symptomatic, or the mortality rate. That's why I've been saying for almost a month now that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, to quote Benjamin Franklin, and why the president was so smart to ban travel coming from China. China um, just a couple weeks ago, so we didn't have more than 20,000 people landing in our country every single day from mainland China. He's right. There's now uh, reports out that some people can go over 30 days with the virus incubating in them before they have signs. In fact, there have been a couple of people who went to the hospital twice with symptoms, but tested negative and had no fever. And it turns out now they actually did have the coronavirus. This really isn't uh, good news. Now, here is, is uh, let, let me get this guy's name right. I want to make sure I have this guy's name right. Uh, this is Dr. Anthony Falky. He is with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. He is the director there. So for the Americans who are infected, what does that actually mean? What, what is the state of their health? Yeah, yeah, well, it varies. I mean, you could be infected and have minimal symptoms, but you still have the possibility of transmitting it to someone else. Okay. Or you could be infected and have some significant lung disease that would require hospitalization and perhaps even some serious intervention. Now, Malaysian health authorities have also said there was an 83-year-old American woman who had been on a different cruise ship, uh, which ended up docking in Cambodia. She landed in Malaysia and then tested positive. This kind of spread, does this indicate this is becoming a pandemic? Well, a pandemic is when you have multiple countries throughout the world that have what's called sustained transmission from person to person to person, multiple generations. Right now, there are 24 countries in which there are over 500 cases. Several of them are starting to get to the second and third transmission. So technically speaking, the WHO wouldn't be calling this a global pandemic. But it certainly is on the verge of that happening reasonably soon, unless containment is more successful than it is right now. And the Chinese have had more people die from uh, the disease. The number continues to go up. And there are 14 American evacuees from the Diamond Princess who have tested positive. The United States is bringing them back to the United States and keeping them in a a containment facility. There are now 1,770 deaths. 
1,775 people killed, at least 70,000 at least infected, most of them continuing to be in China. An 83-year-old American woman was confirmed to have tested positive after disembarking from a cruise ship in Malaysia. Malaysia is now barring all cruise ships from its ports. Uh, in Taiwan, Taiwan had its first death of a 61-year-old man with underlying health conditions. A Chinese patient died in a Paris hospital. This is the first casualty outside of Asia. There are 15 people in the United States now confirmed with the virus after a person in quarantine at the uh, Lackland Military Base in Texas was diagnosed. You got eight in California, two in Illinois, one in Texas, one in Wisconsin, one in Arizona, one in Massachusetts, one in Washington State. Uh, 42 U.S. states and territories have 443 people under investigation. 81 are pending, 347 were found negative. Part of the problem, of course, is that some of the people who were found negative then come back uh, and are found positive. There's misinformation, according to Axios, over factors including the cause. It's triggered panic and xenophobia against Chinese Americans. Does it not seem to you that the media is obsessed with the idea of panic and xenophobia over the Chinese? Oh, people don't want to go to the Chinese restaurant. They're afraid they will get it. Yes, there are always going to be stupid people. But the idea that the worst thing about the coronavirus is, is the people's treatment of the Chinese and poor old Tom Cotton out there saying, where did this come from? We don't know where this came from. There is a there is a lab in Wuhan very near that seafood market that, believe it or not, experiments on the coronavirus. And, huh, we have a strange coronavirus outbreak where the CDC now says that patient zero did not get it from the seafood market but brought it to the seafood market. Did you pay attention to any of that from last week? The CDC tried to track down with the Chinese who might have done. By the way, the Chinese still don't want uh, want comprehensive American medical care with the Chinese. That should be a red flag there as well, that there's something the Chinese don't want us to know about this disease. The fact that Chinese don't want us to come in and help them should be a problematic for everyone listening to this that they're still engaged in some level of coronavirus cover up there. And the fact that the Chinese are blocking our help when we, in fact, can do it better than them and we, in fact, have better resources than them to, to help in the situation uh, does suggest that the Chinese are trying to hide some level of knowledge about the coronavirus from all of us. And yet you point this stuff out and you're a crazy conspiracy theorist. Now, one of the things that's notable here that the, the the Washington Post does not cover is the Washington Post has for a number of years taken a massive amount of money from the Chinese communist propaganda arm and run special sections in the Washington Post from the Chinese communists. And here now comes the Washington Post attacking Tom Cotton, saying that his conspiracy theory, fringe conspiracy theory has been thoroughly debunked. And when you actually get into the article and see who's debunking it, it's three professors, all of whom aren't dismissing the idea, just saying it's not likely. And the Chinese ambassador who, when asked about it, says there's a lot about this we don't know. But to the Washington Post, which has regularly taken money from the Chinese communist propaganda arm, that is debunk. Is it, there any? Can you understand why so many people don't trust the American media? I, I'm seeing this circulating on social media right now, and it is worth actually playing part of this. You've heard this before. God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. 
God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. I need somebody with arms strong enough to wrestle a calf and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to call hogs, tame cantankerous machinery, come home hungry, have to wait lunch until his wife's done feeding visiting ladies, then tell the ladies to be sure and come back real soon and mean it. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. That was Paul Harvey, part of it. God made a farmer. And then there's Mike Bloomberg. Anybody, even people in this room, so no offense intended, to, to be a farmer. You, it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. Then we had 300, you could learn that. Then, then um, you have 300 years of the industrial society. Uh, you put the piece of metal on the lathe, you turn the crank in the direction of the arrow, and you can have a job. And, and we created a lot of jobs. One point. 98% of the world worked in, uh, in agriculture today. It's 2% in the United States. Uh, now comes the information economy. And the information economy is fundamentally different. And then he goes on to say you need more gray matter to be in the information age than you do to be a farmer. You can be dumb and be a farmer, according to Mike Bloomberg, who has never worked on a farm. Man, the president really could just put the Paul Harvey commentary on a loop with Bloomberg and win this election if Bloomberg's the nominee. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. If you would like to be a part of the program, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. And I did, as I promised, I did, I kept my promise, I sent out the baked potato soup recipe on Friday. Um, with all this cold weather we've been having around here, it is it, it is not a healthy... I mean, it's got a pound of bacon and, and a pound of cheese, but man, is it good. It is my wife's recipe for baked potato soup. Uh, she actually went down to Amelia Island uh, with a friend of hers. This has been several years ago now. And went to some restaurant down there and had baked potato soup for the first time and really liked it, but thought she could do better. And man, did she ever... Uh, she came home and mastered it. And if you want the recipe, you can text the word recipe to 33777 and we will get it to you. Uh, text the word recipe to 33777. I, I, I want to spend just a moment on uh, the Tebow law. Todd Jones from Forsyth County is pushing this piece of legislation. Uh, and it, it's um, Georgia's in the minority of states that don't have the Tebow legislation now. Actually, most states have it, and you're wondering what is it? Yeah, it's named for Tim Tebow. I was spoke at the Family Policy Alliance on Saturday night. They had a fundraiser. I was the keynote speaker. They had a number of legislators present talking about the legislation they're pushing. One of their big priorities, the Family Policy Alliance, which is a socially conservative group that advances candidates and policy, is is the Tebow legislation. Uh, put very straightforward. Tim Tebow took advantage of the of a law in Florida that though he was homeschooled, he was allowed to play on the Nice High School football team in Jacksonville, Florida. And 
without the Tebow, without the, the legislation in Florida, it wasn't named after him in Florida. It, it was just a law, it was a law in Florida, one that I believe Jeb Bush had pushed. Um, it allowed homeschool students to do extracurricular activities at local schools. Now, the logic behind this, there are some people who kind of cringe when you hear it, but the logic behind it is you're paying for those public high school facilities. Whether my kids go to a private school, I am not allowed to opt out of paying taxes to fund the local public schools. The local football field or the local public school, I have helped pay for as a taxpayer, even though my children will never set foot on it. The local academic facility, my I have helped pay for it, even though my kids will never take advantage of it. Uh, it is your obligation as a taxpayer is to pay for these things. And Florida, years ago, was one of the the, the first states to pass this legislation uh, as the homeschool movement was growing, saying that homeschool kids can play wherever they would be redistricted, wherever they would be districted into a public school, they can play and, and take advantage of, of the, those facilities. So, for example, uh, if your homeschooler has learned to play the trombone and can qualify for the local marching band at the local public school, go for it. If your kid wants to play on the football team, go, even if they're homeschooled. It is a way to allow the parents of homeschool kids whose kids are not getting the education in the school to get the benefit of the taxpayer dollars the parents have to fund anyway to that school. And now a majority of states have this legislation. A majority of states allow kids who are homeschooled to participate in extracurricular activities at their local public school. Now, David Roberts, he's with the Forsyth County News, has a write-up here. Uh, State Representative Todd Jones is hoping a bill that dons the same name as the former Florida quarterback has better traction than Tim Tebow. Jones plans to introduce the Tebow law this legislative session, which would allow homeschool children to participate in extracurricular activities in public schools. The law is named for the Heisman Trophy winner and first-round NFL pick who was homeschooled but allowed a star on a high school football team in Jacksonville, Florida. The law is on the books in several states, but it hasn't caught on in Georgia despite being introduced several times. Anytime you introduce change into an organization, and it doesn't matter if the organization is the Georgia High School Association or if it's a school board or if it's your local Rotary Club, the fact is change causes people to push back on a natural basis. I understand that. I want to work with everyone. Hey, how can we make this change most appropriate? Because at the end of the day, the very first person that we should be putting in this rubric is the school. Homeschooling in Georgia has increased significantly in the past decade. From 2014 to 2019, the state saw a 20% increase in the amount of homeschool kids. So far this year, the Georgia Department of Education has received declarations of intent for 70 1,340 total students. Parents planning to homeschool their children must submit a form to the Department of Education 30 days after establishing a home study program, then annually by September 1st. The Georgia Department of Education Director of Communications, Megan Frick, expects the number to grow because they're submitted on a rolling deadline. However, these students are not eligible to participate in extracurricular programs at public schools. A similar bill was passed last year. The Georgia High School Association uh, opposed it, but there's continued interest. Now, how do they want to do it? Well, according to, uh, let's see, uh, who is this? The Forsyth County Athletic Director, Nathan Turner, 
He says, I think two of the biggest things that people talk about are accreditation and governance. There are so many homeschool programs. How does it all fit together? How does it all tie together? Among those concerns is the ability to ensure parents don't game the system. For example, if a public school declares a student academically ineligible to participate in extracurricular activities, what keeps their parents from enrolling the child in a different homeschool program to ensure the child remains on the team? Todd Jones, the state representative, however, contends that post-high school institutions already trust parents to provide accurate information when it comes to academics. So why shouldn't the Georgia High School Athletic Association uh, accept someone's characterization of a child's academics if colleges are going to do it? That's a fair point. But here's ultimately the problem. There are a lot of people, including a lot of conservatives, or I shouldn't say conservatives, Republicans, including Republicans in the state legislature, who really don't like the homeschool community. They, they really don't like the fact that parents are taking their kids out of public schools and putting them in homeschool environments where the state can't control them. I got to tell you, I'm kind of opposed to the idea that a homeschool family's got to submit a form to the Department of Education. I don't think you should have to report that your child is being homeschooled. But for me, it comes down to a simple fact. You are required to pay for the extracurricular programs at schools. You're you're required to do it. Your taxpayer dollars go to fund the football team. Now, they got boosters and all the other stuff that comes into it. But at the end of the day, uh, the property and everything, your taxpayer dollars paid for it. And your child doesn't have a facility because they're not at a private school that has these opportunities, they should be allowed to participate in the extracurricular activities. And there are some people saying, well, they got to go to school. No, I don't think they should. They're not going to a school. They're going to in a homeschool environment, but let them participate in the extracurricular activities. Let them do it. What's the harm? There are only going to be a few who do it anyway. I mean, we know statistically in Florida, Florida was one of the, the early adopters of this. The number of kids who are homeschooled in Florida, the the number of kids who participate in extracurricular extracurricular activities who were homeschooled in Florida is not significant. There were some significant people like Tim Tebow who took advantage of the law, but there aren't a high number of them doing it. But let them do it if they want to do it. Frankly, more and more people are going to have to homeschool the way our educational institutions are going. More and more people are going to be withdrawing their kids from schools in order to homeschool them because our schools are failing. And that's just a reality. That That's that's something that we as a state have to work on. That's something that we as a people have to work on. Our schools are collapsing. And the governor wants to do what he can to fix them. You know who's really concerned about this issue is the lieutenant governor. Uh, Jeff Duncan sends his kids to public schools in Forsyth County, uh, where the Tebow bill sponsored uh, Todd Jones lives. And Jeff Duncan is really committed to the improvement of public school. In large part, he says, because he understands that most kids in Georgia are going to go to public schools. And the better our public schools are, the more likely they are going to succeed. The problem is... Well, if you talk to teachers, and and let me just tell you, because I I got a lot of friends of mine who are teachers, and they say the problem is way bigger than the testing. The problem is way bigger than the academic environment. The problem is you've got kids in failing schools, and those schools are failing because the kids' homes are failing. 
and no one wants to talk about that aspect of it. Uh, a lot of families are pulling their kids out of failing public schools and putting them in homeschool programs or private schools because the schools can't keep up. They are failing. Then that's just objective. That's honest. That's fair. Uh, there, you've got gang problems. You've got violence problems. You've got drug problems. Standard problems that all of us who went to public school grew up with, and now they're exacerbated. And so a lot of people are pulling their kids out and they're homeschooling. Now, I will say this. I know people, I am friends with people who sent their kids to public schools and they view it as a missionary experience. Their kids are uh, strong Christians who go to go to churches and they want their kids in public schools uh, glorifying God and all that they do. But here's the problem. I mean, my view on this, and, and feel free to disagree with me on this, but my view is that my child needs to be sure what they believe before they go, on a, go into the mission field. And my teenager isn't really sure what my teenager believes. They're still trying to find their footing. And I don't want to use my kid as a missional experiment in a public school system. I want my kids to first understand and be strong in their faith. Your mileage may vary on that. That's my view. Feel free to disagree. We can still be friends. But you talk to teachers in public schools, and the problem is outside of some of the wealthy schools, and even the wealthy school districts have problems, but increasingly employers, like I'm in Bibb County, and this is a, a notorious problem in, in parts of the school systems here in Bibb County. Go to Wilkinson County, which is very poor, uh, and you, you have this problem even more magnified. You have a lot of broken homes. And it is real hard to teach a hungry kid. It is real hard to teach a kid who has a single parent, who may or may not be shacking up with someone, not that person's dad, whose dad may be in jail. It's real hard to get to that kid. It's real hard to teach that kid. It's real hard to engage with that kid. And yet we're asking our teachers in our public school settings to do that. And then we're holding our teachers accountable and punishing them when they're unable to help the hungry child who comes from a broken home. Broken kids from broken homes don't learn well. That is just a fact. And to punish our teachers for not being able to compensate for that is a problem. You talk to the governor, though, and you talk to some people in academics, and they say there are teachers who can get through to those kids, and they can improve their lives, and they need to be supported, and they're there. And we may attract more of them if we can increase teacher pay, which the governor wants to do, the, the lieutenant governor wants to do, and the speaker wants to kill. There are real problems out there. But back to this homeschool bill. I don't have a problem with letting homeschool kids in Georgia participate in extracurricular activities when their parents' taxpayer dollars already go to fund it. We might as well let them. Uh, people, one of the knocks on homeschooling is that they are uh, they're not socially plugged in, that they're they're atypical socially in their behavior. This is a great way to get them socialized and normalized within society. Let them play these extracurricular activities. Let them help their local team. Let them be a part of their community outside of the homeschool movement. I see no reason to punish parents who withdraw their kids from a failing school who want to come into that school and at least help with extracurricular activity. Maybe then they come in and they say, hey, you know what? This place isn't as bad as we thought. We will start sending our kid here. But you got to get them in the door first, and that's a great way to do it. And to Todd Jones's point, the reason there's so much apprehension in doing this is because we've never done it before. But Georgia's in the minority of states. A majority of states now allow this, and none of them are having problems. So why can't we do it here? Y'all should listen to this audio, and then I'll tell you what it's about. Uh, as 10 those five, the motion carries. The bill will be carried over for the year. A letter will go to the Crime Commission to study it. Thank you, Delegate Levine. Thank Appreciate you, Mr. Chairman. It. Thank you all for being here. And thank each side for your respectfulness.
That is the crowd, many of them uniformed officers, standing up and applauding in the Virginia Senate Judiciary Committee, which has voted to kill the assault weapons ban in Virginia. Uh, let's see here. A, a bill backed by Governor Ralph Northam that would ban the sale of assault-style weapons in Virginia failed on a committee vote Monday morning, setting back one of the biggest priorities for the newly minted Democrat-controlled government in the state. A crowd of gun rights activists packed into the committee room and cheered as the vote came in with four moderate Democrats joining Republicans to shelve the bill until next year. Heated exchanges over guns have dominated this year's legislative session. They were also a key topic of last year's legislative elections, and gun control groups heavily funded Democratic candidates, including Bloomberg, funding a lot of them. Gun rights protesters have been out in force this week over the Democrats' gun control agenda and well they've won Uh, they killed the assault weapons ban in the uh, judiciary committee in the senate in virginia despite uh progressive lawmakers from northern virginia representing the alexandria and arlington area that's the district of columbia area uh pushing very very hard the rest of virginia not really in favor of it you know a lot of democrats in the virginia legislature not really in favor of the gun legislation in large part because uh these democrats in the virginia legislature who don't oppose the gun legislation are from suburban and exurban areas. They took the seats from Republicans, and they, they're they not happy with it. So here, if you're just tuning in, the Virginia Senate Judiciary Committee has just killed HB 961. That's the assault weapons ban in Virginia. They will have to bring it back up next year under the rules of the Senate. They won't be able to bring it back up this year. And there were a lot of people who were upset with me for saying I, I had a hard time believing that this legislation would go forward. I had Stephen Gutowski on, who covers this for the Washington Free Beacon, the best Second Amendment reporter in the country. And he was saying the, the, the radicals in the Virginia legislature, they've got the governor in charge, but there are a lot of moderate Democrats in the state who don't really support it. And they have killed it now in the Judiciary Committee in Virginia. Uh, 14 votes, 10 Republicans joined with four moderate Democrats in the state Senate in Virginia to kill the assault weapons ban there. that that good on them. Good on those Democrats. They may still be bad on issues, but they want to get reelected. And sometimes things like this matter. Now, you know, this is a defeat for Bloomberg to a degree because Mark uh, Mike Bloomberg has pushed very, very hard for a lot of these things. And it just it's it's not uh, not working for him. He's able to get Democrats elected. But a lot of them aren't able to push his gun control agenda because there are still a lot of people out there who don't like it. You know, this is the thing Democrats kind of miss when it comes to the Second Amendment. There are a lot of people on planet Earth who own guns. In this country, most people own guns. In this country, there are 350 million Americans and there are over 400 million firearms owned. There are more guns in this country than there are people. Now, not every person owns a gun, but if you're a gun owner, the odds are you own more than one. We own a bunch in our house. Uh, My wife and I both have our own separate collection of guns. Uh, I've got a Daniel Defense AR. She's She's got a shotgun. I want to get one of those Beretta shotguns that has very little recoil. I need to get another AR. I want more uh, I want more assault weapons in my house, frankly, uh, not just handguns. I, I want rifles in my house. I, I've never been hunting, but it, my my 11-year-old is desperate for me to take him hunting. I'm going to have to figure something out in that regard this year. He wants to go duck hunting, and he wants to go sit in a stand and, and, 
and shoot a deer, but he doesn't eat deer. And I've got a philosophical objection to killing animals that you aren't going to eat. Um, I mean, I, I look, I, I'm not opposed to hunting at all. I, I think hunting fantastic. God bless you for hunting. I'm just not a big, we're not big deer eaters in my house. And so I see no reason to kill a deer. Now, I guess I could donate the meat. Um, but he really wants to do it because he's got so many friends at school who do it. And and a guy like Bloomberg, who doesn't understand the way a farm works, clearly is not going to understand hunters. And the idea that they want to ban guns that are useful in hunting is crazy, but that's what they want to do. And now in Virginia, they've lost, and that's a good thing. Now, we need to move on. There's a story. When we come back, I got to spend some time on this story. The Whisper Network. The Whisper Network. What is the Whisper Network? Well, you are probably one of those people in 2016 who did not feel comfortable openly telling people you were going to vote for Donald Trump. It turns out that there are still way more people who can't openly say they're supporting the president than aren't. And how is that affecting the polling? We should discuss when we come back. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I just got an email from listener Jack uh, who writes, I was the director of communications for the Florida High School Athletic Association when the Craig Dickinson Act, as it was called in Florida, was enacted by the Florida legislature. That was the homeschoolers participating uh, in extracurricular activities. The act was named for the late Mr. Dickinson, whose children were homeschooled by his wife. Uh, and were unable to participate in co-curricular activities. I prefer co-curricular to extracurricular because kids do learn life lessons through participation. Uh, Mr. Dickinson's wife, Brenda, was instrumental in lobbying the legislature to adopt the legislation. The Florida High School Athletic Association vehemently opposed the legislation. I had to write a white paper that described in detail every nightmare scenario that would play out if the legislation was enacted, including, quote-unquote, the end of interscholastic athletics as we know it. I remained with the High School Athletic Association in Florida for 10 years after the legislation became law. I can say with certainty that interscholastic athletics remained and currently remains alive and well in Florida. The number of homeschoolers amounts to 250,000-plus high school student-athletes, and our association was minuscule. Were there challenges? Yes. Did we have reason to believe some of the individuals tried to take advantage of the law? Yes. But the Athletic Association's greatest supporters in working to ensure the new rules weren't abused were the homeschool advocates who worked so hard to get the law enacted and had everything to lose if it were repealed or changed. Home education by law is part of the public school system in Florida. Homeschool students remain under the supervision of the school districts. Florida school districts are by county. There are 67 counties, each with its own school district. Florida law ensures parents' right to choose the best school, private or parochial or homeschool. Each of the 67 school districts were required by law to provide school choice, which was called controlled open enrollment. Most school districts also enter into reciprocal agreements with neighboring school districts that allow students to cross county lines as well. There you have it. Uh, someone who was involved in Florida, he writes, bottom line, the sky is never falling when the chicken littles of the world, regardless of political persuasion, run around screaming that it is. That includes opponents of home education students participating in co-curricular activities. Amen to that. Now, I need, before I get into the Trump whisperer story, need to tell you guys, I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Uh, Chris Burns will be filling in for me tomorrow and want to tell you why. Uh, it, it is with metronomic regularity every three months. Uh, my wife, we've spent so much in the last couple of weeks talking about Rush Limbaugh's lung cancer. My wife has lung cancer. Uh, it is genetic. Uh, it is not a, um, not a thing from smoking. She's never smoked. It's just, it's genetic. And she has a rare genetic form of lung cancer. Thankfully, it was called early. It turns out that the foremost, I mean, God is so providential in this stuff. 
Um, back in 2006, my wife was given six months to live and she had a lung biopsy and the doctors determined that she had a, a rare form of cancer that had spread to her lungs and it's in stage. There was nothing we could do. And she had about six months and I had to actually be the one to tell her and I'll never forget her recovering from anesthesia and having to look her in the eyes and tell her that she had six months to live. And she didn't believe me, but that's what the doctors had said. It does something to you. And thankfully, uh, she was misdiagnosed. She, uh, the doctors came in later and said they looked at it again and they were sending it off to the Mayo Clinic, but they had decided it wasn't the cancer they thought it was. And the Mayo Clinic diagnosed it as a rather benign condition. And it is funny the way God works. I, I, I'm a big believer in God. I, I really am. Um, there have been too many things in my life that just providentially, that they would not have happened if there's not a guy upstairs planning things out. Too many coincidences. Too, too many odd things that happened, and this was one of them. And 10 years later, in 2016, uh, I forget when it was. It was March or April. It was in the spring. And I am being wheeled into a cardiac ICU unit trying not to die. Very literally, I have dozens, not just one or two, but dozens of blood clots in my lungs. They don't know where they came from to this day. And uh, my lungs are filling up. My blood oxygen level is, is falling rapidly below 80%. And I am in bad shape. And my wife calls me. The Mayo Clinic can actually call me. They were trying to get a hold of her. They finally were able to get a hold of her. And said they thought uh, that she had a rare form of lung cancer, that they were seeing people who had her condition from when she had been misdiagnosed 10 years before, who it was it was now lung cancer, and she needed to fly out to Arizona to the Mayo Clinic and have her lungs examined, and sure enough, she did. And the Mayo Clinic said they were happy to treat her, but uh, do you know that the world's foremost authority on this uh, cancer is at Emory University in Atlanta, an hour from our house up the road from Macon? And it, I mean, it, a total providential thing. Had they not misdiagnosed her in 2006 and 2016, they would have never known to even look. And it would have been too far gone before they could do anything about it. But they caught it very early. And she goes for scans every three months. And I got to tell you, um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a muddled mess for weeks before this, we go for, we, every three months this happens and my wife is a trooper and she deals with it so great. And I don't, and I should. And my motto is why pray when I can worry. And I, I spend a week before just worrying, um, every time in any pain in her body, anything that happens, I'm like, Oh gosh, cancer. It, it's finally here. She's on a medicine that keeps the tumors from growing. Uh, the medicine will stop working one day when her body finds a way to mutate around. It's, it really is fascinating how this cancer of hers works. Um, but she goes every three months for scans, and her scans are tomorrow, so I will not be here. Now, unfortunately, I'm not actually able to go with my wife tomorrow for her scans. Her parents are going to go with her because uh, our kids have off uh, Washington's birthday. And note, it is Washington's birthday. It is not President's Day. It is Washington's birthday. We are not celebrating every president. We we are celebrating George Washington's birthday. And today, the post office will not be delivering mail because it is Washington's birthday. And all of us will be at work thinking, why is this a holiday when we're all at work? Well, my kids have off tomorrow as well. And so I will be with my kids. And y'all don't want me on the radio tomorrow because I will be fundamentally unable to focus on anything uh, as I am in a, a pit of worry. 
and it will all be well, and the doctors will tell us to come back in three months, and we'll do it all over again, and in three months, I'll do it all over again, and I will tell you the exact same thing I'm telling you right now. I will just be a a, a ball of, of, of stress and worry uh, as I am every, every three months, and I hate not being able to go this time uh, with my wife, but uh, that's just the way it works. So... All of that being said, I will not be here tomorrow. You will not want to hear me on the radio tomorrow as we deal with all of this. Uh, now, let me move on to Brett's and your prayers are appreciated. Thank you. Trump's Whisper Network from Brett Stevens in the New York Times. Several months after the Harvey Weinstein schedule broke and the Me Too movement got powerfully underway, Katie Rofi, writing in the reliably liberal Harper's Magazine, wrote an essay on what she called the Other Whisper Network. It was the sort of piece that took great honesty to write and great courage to publish. The original Whisper Networks comprised women quietly warning other women about predatory and abusive men in their work and social environments. But as a succession of Me Too stories unfurled in the media, some of which seemed far more ambiguous and less egregious than the earlier headline cases, Rofi noticed something else. Women were afraid publicly to second-guess aspects of the movement they felt had lost a sense of fairness and proportion, largely out of fear of social media's Jacobin call-out culture, the shame culture. Can you see why some of us are whispering, Rofi asked about this new network? It is the sense of viciousness lying in wait, of violent hate just waiting to be unfurled that leads people to keep their opinions to themselves or to share them only with close friends. In recent years, these whisper networks have only proliferated from one subject, one institution, one domain to another. Is sex, biologically speaking, binary? A columnist for the Denver Post thought so and last month lost his job. He claims as a direct result. Should writers of one race or culture be allowed to create characters and inhibit and inhabit cultures not their own? One such writer recently had her book tour count canceled over safety concerns following criticism of her novel about the plight of Mexican immigrants. You needn't take one position or another or any on any of these questions to notice and object to the overall trend. Speech is free except where and when it isn't. Widely held religious views entail potentially ruinous professional hazards. Broad areas of intellectual inquiry are treated as off-limits. Having a bad opinion means being a bad person. People who freely share the most intimate details of their sex lives with near strangers think twice about sharing some of their political views with old friends. And a new version of the Miranda warning seems to apply across all media, social and traditional. Anything you say or have ever said in context or out, deliberately or by misspeaking, can and will be held against you. Which brings me to what is perhaps the biggest whisper network of all. The one involving inner flashes of sympathy, frequently tipping into support of the ballot box for President Trump. Plenty, plenty of people are aware of this phenomenon. One recent academic study noted that so-called secret voters supported Trump over Clinton by two to one in 2016. That statistic should be every bit as alarming to Democrats this time around, not least because it suggests that polls may be dramatically underweighting the scale of Trump's support. Yet beyond the question of why people might want to conceal their voting preferences, reputation management, social harmony, and so on, it's worth asking whether the very fact that a vote for Trump was supposed to be shameful is also what made it so attractive. After all, forbidden fruit is appealing, not because it fruit, but because it is forbidden. For every voter who pulled the lever for Trump out of sympathy for his views, how many others did so out of disdain for the army of snickering moralists? 
telling them that a vote for Trump was unpardonable. My hunch, probably enough to make a difference in the states that made the difference. I've been saying this for a while, and I know some of you who listen have, because I've seen some of you, and we've had this conversation. In fact, I was at Publix the other day uh, near my house, and, you know, I've become that person, and I apologize if you see me in the grocery store anywhere. I've become that person who wears my headphones uh, when I'm at the grocery store because inevitably I go in and somebody recognizes me. Now that the, the, the station making, WMAC in Macon, has picked up the show, and a lot of people, listen, my goodness, I was at church the other last weekend and had a bunch of people come up to me, listen to the show. And, and that's awesome. I love that people listen. Uh, I love that people are tuning in. I do. But occasionally I just want to go grocery shopping. I, I just I just want to go grocery shopping. And a guy came up to me the other day at the grocery store at Publix and was picking my brain on something. And so when I went in yesterday to do the the heavy grocery shopping, I just wore my, my little white Apple AirPod earbuds. I, I have become that person as the sign of, please, I just want to grocery shop. I really don't want to talk about politics right now. But when I was there the other day, this guy was talking to me about this. And it was kind of funny to see Brett Stevens' article because that was the whole premise of the conversation I had the other day, uh, standing by the frozen pizza section in the Publix, which, you know, why do grocery stores shake up their aisles? Just as a random aside, uh, God bless them, my local Publix, they've discombobulated the whole store. I can't find anything anymore. And I guess that's why grocery stores do it because apparently, I mean, I could go in, I could go out, just zip in, zip out, get exactly what I needed and I knew exactly where it was. And now all the aisles are rearranged and I got to go pay attention. And I guess that's why they do it. But nonetheless. I digress. So this guy was telling me that he works in an environment. It's an academic institution, and he is going to vote for the president in 2020. And he dare not tell a soul that he's voting for the president, and he wanted my advice on how to navigate it. And I told him, very frankly, if I were him, I would do kind of what I do, be willing to to say Trump bad on occasion, be willing to say Trump good when you, when when the need arises. When he does something that's good, say you think it's good. When he does something that's bad, say you think it's bad. Just just uh, be straightforward with people. But I don't blame him for not even wanting to do that. I don't blame him for wanting to keep his mouth shut, particularly in an academic institution like the one he's at. Uh, given his position at that institution, people would be horrified. I mean, his faculty members would would march on his office with pitchforks and torches if they knew he was going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020. I can't blame him. The intolerance of the left on this issue uh, gives them a false sense of security, I think. There's a story in The Atlantic as well. Evidence is there that conservative students really do self-censor. Here's the good news. In classrooms where politics come up, large majorities of self-identified liberal and conservative students say that instructors encourage participation from both sides and want to learn from different perspectives, suggesting concerns about faculty indoctrination are unfounded. Here are the ba- here's the bad news. While majorities favor more viewpoint diversity and free speech norms, an intolerant faction of about a quarter of students... 25% of students believe it's okay to silence or suppress views they deem wrong. Students across political perspectives engage in self-censorship. Students harbor divisive stereotypes about classmates with different beliefs and a substantial minority are not open to engaging socially with classmates. Disparaging comments about political conservatives are common. To measure student tolerance for views with which they disagree, the researchers chose matters of ongoing controversy, the fate of a Confederate statue, affirmative action and admissions, immigration, healthcare, climate change, and whether Christian bakers should be compelled to bake cakes for gay weddings. 
and presented students with mainstream positions that a liberal or conservative classmate might hold. Respondents were asked to indicate which among those positions they found most regrettable or objectionable. 25% of respondents were willing to censor the other side. Surprisingly, listen to this, the authoritarian view was held by 19% of self-identified liberals, 3% of moderates, and 3% of conservatives. More than 3% of liberals and 1% of conservatives thought it would be appropriate to yell profanity at a student. Also troubling were that undergrads who reported having kept an opinion to themselves in the classroom, even though the opinion was related to the class, almost 68% of conservatives self-censor, while only 24% of liberals feel the need to self-censor. In other words, roughly a quarter of progressive students believe that it is their right to shut down and silence anyone with which they disagree, and only 3% of conservatives feel that way. In that climate, extrapolate out from colleges to jobs, particularly on, on college campuses where jobs, like this guy I was talking to the public set the other day, who doesn't want people to know he's supporting the president in 2020 because he's afraid of the, the impact on his job at his college. Of course. It affects the polling. There is a whispered network of people who support the president. I mean, listen, if you support the president these days, you're accused of being a fascist, of being a racist, of being a homophobe, of being a bigot, of being a hater, of being a deplorable, of being all sorts of things. And it, it's even more so than in 2016. The vitriol from the left about this president is even worse now than it was then because then they didn't think he could win and then he won and it's become worse. You're helping the Russians. You're a traitor to this country. You're a horrible human being. All of this for supporting the president. President. So naturally, there are a lot of people who don't want to say they support the president and even the pollsters call. I mean, look at the AJC. The AJC did a poll. It showed Brian Kemp with 54 percent approval. It showed that in Georgia, 45 percent of the people voted for Clinton, 41 percent voted for Donald Trump. Actually, it was 48, 45. In other words, the people the AJC interviewed who were willing to say they voted for Hillary Clinton mirrored the people who voted for Hillary Clinton, but they couldn't find the Trump voters. It's because the Trump voters are willing to go in the polls and vote. They're just not willing to tell anyone they did it. And that really does mess up all the information and data generation out there. That's not to say the polls are wrong because you can do this enough and you can get a sense of stuff. And again, in 2016, the polling wound up being right. Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote at roughly the same percentage as the polls showed. But when you get into the state-by-state -state polling in places like Miss. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and it's really, really close in the polls, this sort of stuff matters. I'm not going to take your calls now because we've only got about a minute left in the program. I, I do want to call your attention to the Nevada caucuses where things are not going well. I know that if I'm voting in a primary, I go into the booth, I press the button, I know which candidate I voted for. If I'm going to a caucus and I'm physically there, I know where I'm putting my body and who's getting my support. If I give you a list of five names in order of my preference, but I don't know who's viable at what point and when you go to the other person on my list, how will I know at the end of the process who actually had my vote? That is the risk of voting on paper. I fully agree. So, so but think about what. The so, and, and, and I'm running out of time here, but so early voting in Nevada starts in a couple of hours. <laughs> early voting for a caucus. 
that was on Sunday. No, that was on Saturday. And they can't figure out their software in Nevada either. They're now trying to make it a paper caucus. No electronics allowed. 